0: I'm Jonathan Polevsky, and it's my pleasure to interview Manuel Barueco for these podcasts. In response to the overwhelming response and interest in podcasts with you, Don Manuel, we have uh, several people (laughs) around the, uh, literally around the world, who are interested in knowing some things, uh, in getting your responses to various questions. So, are you ready?
1: Actually, I wrote them all myself. I was up all night. First, what uh, is the capital
0: of Assyria? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. (laughs) Uh, the first question comes from David Briarwood, who says, I'm really enjoying Manuel's podcasts. Nothing about me, mind you. Oh, hi, David. <laughs> Could you cover the process of recording, especially with the contrast of working in your own studio versus EMI and the big guys? Let's start with that. Uh, oh, and he. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, then there's a nice edit. Quick nerdy question. What mics are you using to record? I read an old piece that you're using a Neumann uh, KM84s. I don't believe they make those anymore. And they've been superseded by the 184s. What are you using for the latest albums? I just received the latest Sounds of the Americas. What is next? So let's start with a uh, difference in recording studios. Wow. Between, um, well, one has less wine in it, right?
1: W- one has less wine in it, that's right. <laughs> I guess the obvious thing is that when you're recording in a studio like Abbey Road, I mean, just being there is really, you know, inspiring. And also because uh, some of the studios really have a nice sound to it. So um,
0: So they're not all dry. They're not all like bone no, dry. No, no, no. Uh-huh.
1: You know, things come to to mind, memories come to mind. Like I remember recording there and have, you know, Paul McCartney called the recording studio at that moment. You know, that's not going to happen at home. <laughs> <laughs> so other than that, just, just the joy of being there. I guess the most the most obvious thing is if, is that if you have it at home, you can do it whenever you want. So money is not really an issue, you know. I mean, when when you go into a uh, to to make a recording with a record company, there's a budget and there's a certain amount of time. And if you're running behind, you have to go go ahead and hurry up and do it. Another bad thing about recording with uh, with a record company is that if you're asked to record something at a time that you're not really ready to record it and there have been periods in my life when i've made like a couple recordings a year or so and when you're doing that much it's really hard to be on top form so the good thing when you're home is that if you're not happy you can go do it again you know and and when it's ready you can you can do it and and you can take uh, more of your time, which can also be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Because if you have the time, you you could also end up taking too much time. So I, I actually find myself, you know, sometimes giving myself sort of a limit of time, how much time I'm going to spend recording something, you know. I'm curious what it was like to do those early Vox recordings. Uh... Well, that's something that it would be hard to believe by today's standards. The way that happened was that the engineer... His name was David Hancock, you know, and David Hancock was actually he was a very nice pianist, you know, and and he he loved music and he just had one of those real to real tapes, you know, and and he had a uh, I think he had like a special one that that went uh, I forget how many
0: mm-hmm. so thirty inches per second and, like
1: uh, inches I per think he was yeah. like double the, like uh-huh. the, the, yeah. the, the, the usual thing you know which made him a wizard in in uh, in editing and uh, we went into different places in New York mostly in a church. Most of them were done in a church in New York and they were done in, in two sessions of three hours each, which is not very much time. One of the bad things about recording there was that if you listen carefully, being that these recordings were done done in New York City, I mean you'll you'll hear people getting stabbed and mugged and and you <laughs> and you'll hear kids playing, you know, throwing baseball, you know, and around and and it was a different process. I mean it was also We would go in, we would spend three hours each time. I remember one time we had to spend an extra hour and he had to call Vox Records, you know, to be approved for the extra hour. And, you know, I would take the tapes home with me, actually copies of the tapes, and I would make all the decisions as to where the uh, editing should be Mm -hmm. made and so on. Now, later, with a company like EMI, you know, it was much more time than just, you know, six hours sure. of recording. Mind you, that was six hours for an LP, which was only really 40 minutes of music. And uh, and they did everything. I mean, they also did the editing, and so they sent it, they would send it to me, and, and then you make comments on it if you're happy or not or whatever, you know. So so with the Vox, it was more hands-on, you know, it was right there and making all the decisions and... And with EMI, it's more complicated producers and all that involved. Yeah.
0: They both sound really good, actually. They both hold up very, very well. The Vox? Yeah, the vo- they both, they all both. do, actually. Yeah. They both in their own different way. Uh, for the Vox ones, you know, uh, we have the three CD sets uh, that. Uh, you know, um, that was a compilation of the three individual albums that you did. It holds up really well. It's you, uh, you know, at a very young age, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, ta- you know, conquering the world. And some of the EMI things, the Bach, the Vise, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my favorite, uh, probably the uh, Albanese Granados, I think, is a, oh. is a, a Uh Also really you good. You mean
1: Albanese Santurino, maybe? Albanese
0: Santurino, sorry, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah, the complete yeah. Suite Espanola, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well... When you're working with the producer, and when you're not really sure what sound you want, you're sort of the mercy of of, of the producer and the engineer. To be honest, it, it took me a long time to figure out what sound I wanted. And with the uh, with the different EMI recordings, depending on which hole we used, that wasn't in my. The Bach and the Wisse was done. Both, actually, that and the Albanese and Turina were both made in in, in Germany in different halls. And it depended also on the sound that the uh, the producer had in mind. For those, it was actually a violinist, mm-hmm. the producer. I always kind of thought that he favored higher pitched sounds. I may be wrong about that. And with the Vox, actually, I don't think we know what we were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, or maybe, actually, maybe we shouldn't say that. Maybe, maybe David. Hancock, you know, the engineer, maybe he knew a lot more than, than I realized, you know, that he was doing. But it takes a while. It took me a while, if not a long time, to, to have a concept of sound.
0: But maybe it's kind of exciting that you did go through that process, that very sort of, you know, wild, wild west process of recording early in your career, and that gave you sort of, you know, uh, an appreciation for when, you know, everything is done for you, you walk in, you record, you know, maybe uh, it was a nice way to, uh, progression, an interesting yeah. progression of how to how to make these things. Yeah, but,
1: but it, even if everything is done for you, it doesn't mean that you're happy with the results.
0: Yeah, also true. Good, good call.
1: With a lot of the EMI recordings, the, the ones that were made in Germany, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of discussion about the sound. And, for example, there's one issue that I think is really important, is that some people feel that if you don't uh, maneuver the sound, if you don't treat it in any way, if it's pure just with the microphones, that somehow that is more real. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that is true. I think it sounds more real if it sounds closer to the way you actually sound and sometimes you need to maneuver that with uh, what do you call it with um, equalization uh, yeah with uh, equalization uh, or the stuff like that so because I think the goal should be to to make a sound the way the way you sound right Right.
0: because it's an artificial thing you know why should we pretend it's natural I mean there's no such thing as natural recorded sound the only natural sound is going to be the sound that you know you actually have when you're in the hall uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so and the, and, the,
1: and the position of, of the microphones can sure. change so much the sound right. that just because the microphone is in front of you, and it has you know and and the uh, and the final edit has not been touched in any way equalized you know doesn't mean that it sounds more like the the original thing because you take the same microphones and move them two inches the other way and you get a different sound altogether.
0: Well, speaking of microphones, uh, we should go back to David Briarwood and talk about um, the Neumanns. Uh, What are you using, the KM84s or the 184s?
1: So the microphones that we're using are DPAs 4006 uh this it used to be the uh b m k the danish microphones
0: right now now i have to uh this is not something that you're like you're more interested in how the microphones sound than the actual microphones basically you yeah i'm not into microphones i'm
1: not into much of anything mm-hmm. like that. i'm not mm-hmm. into uh, the, i'm not into recording uh equipment. Technology, yeah. no, i'm not, i am not at all i mean i am only in terms of the sound you know that it produces you know but but um yeah, but not really. I'm not. I'm not. You know. Fair enough.
0: Okay, David Bryward,
1: last question. Um, oh, I you should say. I'm sorry. Oh, no, please. Sorry. The, the confusion, perhaps, with the KM84s is, is that is that I do use KM84 for for amplification. Ah, for sound reinforcements. Yeah, for uh-huh. that. For that, I do use it. And, uh, that's your live mic. That's uh, yeah, exactly. You mm-hmm. that for that together with a generic uh, speaker.
0: So you're using the KM84 for your live uh, sound reinforcement when you're playing, and you need a little bit more volume right. in a hall. And that's going into a preamp. Right. And that's going into a, a it's monitor
1: a, speaker of some sort. That's right. It's a it's a, it's a studio quality speaker. It's a generic uh, 8050A which I think used to be the 1031A. I mm-hmm. don't think I, I know this from memory. You, I'm reading this.
0: I, I, I appreciate that. And where do you put it?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, you mean while amplifying? Where does the speaker go? Uh, well, it used to be that I, I used to put it right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess since we're doing podcasts and we have, we have time. Can I tell you a long story? Yeah, please. It had to do with... Um, when I was able to work with uh, with Osawa in Boston, with the, with the Boston Symphony, and there was, amplification was a big issue because he didn't want to use it, and taking me towards that and he wanted it. But to make, actually I'll take, make the long story short. What I learned from that is that the sound, the amplified sound, should come from near the source, from the instrument instead of someplace else. I think when we had the first rehearsal, the speakers were like at the side of the orchestra or something, and I still see that being done somewhere, in some places, and it really should come from near. Nia so it sounds like it's coming from the instrument now in a couple of situations recently I I've tried putting it in behind me and it seems to have worked in some in some ways better you know so I, I am experimenting with that now but it's usually right in front or right behind can you go under the chair I haven't done that I mm-hmm. don't know if it would fit even mm-hmm. uh and I don't know if, if it would cause feedback either ah, but, oh no? good call yeah that's all. Awesome. I mean for example With the string quartet, with this kind of repertoire that we're playing, that is uh, where the guitar is really the main instrument, we've been using amplification. And I used to have it in front of me, you know, so I couldn't really hear myself through that. Now, when we put it behind, they also can hear better how Mm -hmm. much actually, Mm -hmm. how much sound is actually coming out of me you know, so it makes for a better performance.
0: Yeah, and when you add amplification, it changes the whole equation of, it doesn't, I'm not saying it makes it worse, but you really have to account for that when you do your mix in terms of how you're going to play together, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the we'll mix for what? The mix between you and the quartet. Well, or I,
1: but, I, yeah. one, but I, I think you have to look at the pieces, and it, and it could be that some require somewhat different levels, you know, or maybe higher amplification, less amplification, but but normally it's probably best if you leave it at one level and work with that. Mm-hmm. You know? Ah, okay. Now see again, see, for example, I find that specifically with the uh, with the, in the quintet when I play a repertoire that was already conceived for guitar and and string quartet that less amplification is needed. But for example, doing the Tango Sensations, which was originally for bandoneon and string quartet, there I need more. Uh-huh, okay. Which, you know, makes uh-huh, sense because. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The band on is a much more powerful right. instrument. Yeah. By the way, it depends also obviously on the size of the hall and the repertoire. For example, I, 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 I never amplify if it was one of the Boccherini quintets. Now, having said that, actually, I did amplify that here one time at the Meyerhof, which for those people that don't know, is a, a hole well over 2,000 seats. And in that occasion, I did amplify. It, mm-hmm. it, it, the guitar wasn't really present enough
0: now um last question from david briarwood um he just received latest sounds of the americas you have a next project
1: i'm working on that right now i i am trying to decide what to put out it could be either it's it's either going to be a solo uh recording or, or one of guitar duos that i did uh some years ago i was i was doing some concerts and uh or music for two guitars with Franco Platino, and and um, and that I'm going to be putting out sometime soon,
0: probably. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, I'm going to ask you from Alvaro Mendezabal in, from Arizona. Uh, he asks you what challenges and opportunities has the demise of the recording industry uh, provided you?
1: Well, well, I think um, one thing that I like is the fact that I'm, I'm doing my own recordings. That allows me to record exactly what I want, whenever I want, with the sound that I want, and I, I have nobody to blame but myself for whatever comes out. Also, one nice thing about it is that at the end of it all, I own my work. Mm-hmm. Usually, if not always, perhaps not always, but usually when you record for a record company, they usually end up, Owning the uh, the masters, and then they decide whether it's uh, it's taken out of uh, stock. You know, they stop selling it or not, whatever. So now I can decide what to do. That to me is the uh, is the nicest thing. You know, to be able to do that.
0: Do you have a chance of getting any of the masters back?
1: Well, it depends on the company. I've tried in a couple of situations to get some of the masses back, and, and and they have not been mm. wanting to do uh-huh. it. Uh-huh, interesting. Sometimes companies have certain ways by which they decide whether they take a, a recording out of print. And uh, and sometimes it could be because they have a program that decides that if if a, if, a, if, a, if a recording sells less than a certain number during a certain period of time, how it goes. And that's, that, of course, is short-sighted. You know, because it could be a downswing and that doesn't predict the future of, of the recording. So having said that, you know, the, the, in, at least in my experience, when I try to buy some of my own tapes, you know, sometimes they just refuse to, right. refuse to do it. So,
0: What's the role of recorded music in the 21st century? That,
1: that I, uh, I don't know. Actually, you know wow. let, let me, let me, let me uh, yeah, this is <laughs> I mean, th- these are questions for somebody who's intelligent, not for me. I just play guitar, guitar. Um, we were talking about this the other day, that, it used to be, for example, like the big careers in music. And I'm not talking just about the guitar. But the big careers in music were built by the, by the record companies. So when the agents went to a, to a concert series and they said, well, look, you, sh- you should have so-and-so here for your series. You know? And they said, well, who's so-and-so? He said, well, so-and-so has just been signed by Deutsche Grammophon, and, and then you would go into a record store and see the big poster and so on and thinking, well, maybe I should have this person. What is happening now is that not even the record stores are there anymore. So there are no places to hang these posters. So the only thing that is really left from, in my opinion, by the way, from, from the record companies, is just, it's just the prestige of the label mm-hmm. they used to have. So if you say, well, somebody is such and such a label, well, that should say something. Except that even then, nowadays, a lot of things that they've been recording are not necessarily things of quality. You know, but sometimes it seems almost like a circus. Some of the, some of the things that are taking place. Obviously, not everything. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that are quite good still. But but mm-hmm. if I was a beautiful, great, you know, 19 mean, year old beautiful woman playing the guitar, still the fact is, I'm not even sure how they're going how they're going right. to push What you. are they actually going to do for you? The That's what I'm not so sure anymore. I, I think See, you're again, right. Again, again, before they would take the, uh, the the ads on on the newspapers they would put your 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 posters in their record shops now i'm not even sure what they're going to do for you anymore
0: i think the only thing that's going to be of advantage to you if you're on a major label is you can send it out to any producers and say hi i'm on Deutsche Grammophon i want to be part of your concert series and that's and that's a success but other than that there's not much
1: really yeah. i don't think there is much but the question is What's going to replace that? Right. That's now, what is not clear you, to me. Right now, for you, you've
0: established a reputation. So, if I get an an a CD from you, whether it's on Tonar or whether it's on EMI, it's still you because I know you because I've known you for a while. But what about younger people? Well, that's the, that's that's the, that's the hard thing. What about your? You know, you have some incredible students. Yeah. You know, uh, both uh, current and former. Who? What about them? What happens to them?
1: Well, that's that's the that's the thing that is not so clear to me. I think for for any musician that. That had built a name for himself for herself before the change, as you said. Well, they they can make their own recordings and and it's not really much of an issue. The only thing that one might miss, you know, is sort of like going to Abbey Road. Well, mm. I, I guess I, I guess I could rent it myself. I mean, <laughs> but still, that's the prestige that comes from that. Is so, something kind of intoxicating. But even that's over.
0: Mm-hmm. Even that yeah. is over. I mean, yeah.
1: it, it's so, it's it's really it's really over. I mean, anyway. So for the young people. The thing is, what is good for them is that anybody can now make a recording for how do they get attention
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how do they do that. So there's a lot of white noise out there and there's a lot of noise and a lot of a lot of recordings out there. And this goes back to, to our first podcast when we started talking about this, uh, why do podcasts. And these could be ways in which one could say, well, you should listen to so-and-so, you should listen to so-and-so. And I, And as I get older, actually, I mean, I do feel even that responsibility in a way to some of the attention that I get to be able to re-channel uh, that into all uh, into the young players. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alvaro says thanks very much and he'll see you in Copeland's. All right. Okay. See you then. All right. <laughs>
0: Let's move to Bob Greenspan. He has two questions. The first is specific and the second is general. First off, there's a strumming passage at the end of the second movement, the Adagio movement from the Aranuez Concerto by Rodrigo. That's the high point of the piece. Okay. Um, you play it as composed, as do others, but John Williams plays it an octave lower, which he likes better. Uh, any thoughts on
1: this? Yes. This I, is the big uh, Ruschiato. I think it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it's, he, he means like at the climax. Of the right. cadenza. Well, I used to play an octave lower. I used to, I studied briefly with Ray de la Torre, you know, many years ago, and, and that's one thing that, that he said to me I should do, so I started doing it that way. When you play it in octave low... What is the chord? Tell me. Well, the chord is... Uh, the chord that is actually written mm-hmm. is D sharp, E, and the, and the fifth string, 11th fret, it mm-hmm. will be G sharp, E, F sharp, C sharp, and then high A. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. okay. On the, the second string.
1: No, the high A on the, uh, on oh, the first. On we're the talking, we're on talking the like, all the way okay. up.
0: Oh, okay. Ah. Oh, all the way up on the, uh, like on the, f- the 17th fret on the A? Yeah, something A? like that. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's my Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But what happens is is that often guitars don't sound that good up there. And I think as a a consequence, some players began to play it on octave floor, and and, and I was doing it again because my teacher had told me to to do so back then. But then I came to the conclusion that, in my opinion, it was really not the best thing. One thing is that to go down an octave it's not really the uh the right resolution i mean if it's been climbing all the way up yeah, yeah yeah, you know all the way up and then by that time you get to the climb i you drop it an octave it's sort of like putting you know building a building and putting the top you know next to it on the, on, on the bottom floor again and next to it and the other thing is that you cannot really play the right chord mm. you know when you play it an octave lower as far as i remember you have to add a note that just changes the chord slightly and it's, and it's a nice chord, but it's not, a, it's not really the right chord. So for those two reasons, and also because the guitars now sound better up there, I, I do it an octave higher. No, actually not an octave higher. I, I do it the way that it's written. Mm-hmm. You know. But if it's doing an octave lower, the, the chord is very resonant. Mm-hmm. You know, an octave lower. But it is, I believe it's not, it's not the right chord, and, and it's, I don't believe it's the right resolution.
0: Now, the general question is, uh, he says, Bob says he's been playing classical guitar for over 40 years. He's run across notes that seem to sound better if played differently. I don't know exactly what he means by this. He says, I'm now working on one of Bach's Gavots, and I can't understand why he chose two notes to play since others sound so much nicer. How guilty should I feel if I play the music in a way other than the great master wrote it?
1: Um, very guilty. No, no, no. <laughs> no, um... You know, when I teach in school, I teach all these students to go by the rules, you know, and I teach them to pay attention to the composer, you know, to understand what they're doing, to play by the rules, but then I tell them, once you're out of here, if you play Bach and you put bass and drums, I really couldn't care less,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, so what I would say is that that, uh, it depends on what his goals are, Mm -hmm. you know, if his goals is to play the music in a way that that represents Bach the, 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 uh, the best way possible, you know, and... And accurately, well by all means you know do not change that note, those notes but if it is if he just wants to have fun and he, I don't know if he's a professional player or an amateur and he wants to change it and if it gives him pleasure do it
0: mm-hmm. maybe
1: one day you'll figure out you know the right note mind you I have to say one thing I, I, I don't know if, of course what note he's talking about, but it's really hard to find a, a bad note with Bach, <laughs> specifically I think there are very few like perfect composers out there and he's one of them. I can tell you that to this day, I still have not found a bad note in his writing. Perhaps it's also a misprint. It but you also, also be...
0: work, you've done lots of additions and lots of, uh, and you try and stay as close as you can, but sometimes you have to make adjustments, either because things are not playable or because, mm. you know, I, uh, it's... but he's talking yeah, but about physical sound, I guess, which just a little different.
1: Well, uh, you know, if if it gives him pleasure in the privacy of his own home, I mean, why not? But... But uh, but not really. I mean, I, I think uh, as a professional, I cannot do that, and I, w- I wouldn't advise to do that to, to student, to a serious student. I don't know exactly what, what what Bob means by that, but it is okay. In in something like Bach, sometimes to change notes if they're not really playable in the music. I mean, I think in any in, I think in any in any music that allowed for improvisation, ornamentation, you know, whether it's Bach or jazz or something, I think. Sometimes it could be a good thing to change some notes, you know, in order to accommodate the, uh, the instrument. I see that as possible. And I think that could be okay. And I think probably Bach himself would do it sometimes, maybe. But, uh, but again, I don't have enough information on what he's talking about really making it. Uh,
0: Okay, Bob, write us back.
1: Uh, Send us another note.
0: Okay, this is from Robert Trent in Radford, Virginia. Oh, hi. Uh, He says, uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge for an artist, young or mid-career, to sustain their career? Uh, If only we all knew that. I separate young from older artists as the answer may be different for each. This is an interesting thing because you watch a lot of your students go through, you know, uh, a whole generation of students now going through various uh points in their career and stages in their career so let's yeah. maybe let's maybe start uh like with young artists
1: well i think an artist it can be compared to to a wine to a good wine i think you have some wines that will age well that have the the right components for it to age and get better uh, as it ages and some that don't you better mm-hmm. drink in that away right away because it's not going to get anywhere and I think this is also true for, for for musicians. Depending on which roads they take, some musicians, you know, they're not really going to go anywhere, and some will develop well. It depends on how they approach things. For example, a very a very simple example, a very 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 simple example. If you have a guitarist or a musician that is really playing from the heart, you know, is is really communicating himself. is really an honest player you know, intellectually and emotionally, uh, this is a player that will probably, with the years, will evolve. Mm-hmm. And as he changes as a person, his or her playing will change as well. Now, if you have a player that is really basically relying on tricks, this player will perhaps learn a couple more tricks or uh, maybe even become bored with his, uh, his or her own tricks and and, and, and begin to be like imitations of themselves after a while. That's one simple example you know so I think for for a young player or for any player, I think the, it, one important thing is to 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 aside from the from the fact that to understand your art you know to understand music you know to try to 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 be really good musicians and to know how music functions and and, and expresses you know feelings is to also sort of feed yourself you know to to also take care of yourself to make sure you expose yourself. To, uh to other things that you grow as an individual that you, that you become a more complex wine in a way and that hopefully will come through in 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 your playing I you know and, and that could be also not only the playing, it could also be in terms of, of the repertoire that you play a, a lot of things so so by all means you know go out listen to to a lot of different things you know all the musicians and all the instruments all the styles of music remain open all the kinds of art everything and and just just grow with it. I think just to remain engaged, remain curious, I think it's uh, yeah is important and that's and that's, sometimes it's not easy by the way, sometimes it's not easy to do that sometimes we we don't know exactly what to do, so I think that's why it's important to 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 keep open you know and and expose yourself to all kinds of different things.